Hello, and welcome to Strategic Leadership with Paul Gilbert. In today's episode, we are going to focus on innovation. One of my favorite topics, we're going to answer a couple of questions. One is, one is why to innovate? And the other one is how to innovate in a specific way. And specifically, we're going to be looking at blue ocean strategy, one of the coolest approaches to innovation out there. Really excited to get into this. I want to, though, first talk a little bit about the why of this channel. This channel focuses on strategy and leadership. And I think those subjects are important because if you have any kind of enterprise or organization or or mission that you're trying to accomplish out there, whether it is a service to the public, a great product that you want to deliver, whatever it is, if it's important and you want to make a difference in the world, you need the scale of an organization. You need that organization to really work well. So that's where both strategy and leadership come in. First, let's focus on the why. Why do we need to innovate in whatever enterprise we are engaged in? A couple of interesting quotes I'll throw out there that kind of help push us in that direction. Um, so Jack Welsh, the, the former CEO of General Electric, had a great quote. He's, he was quite a quote machine, is quite a quote machine. He said, when the rate of change inside a company is less than the rate of change in the outside world, you're living on borrowed time. I think that is um, a fantastic quote. Another quote out there, is um, this one, and I'll, I'll say who it is in a moment. It is not the strongest of the species who survive, nor the most intelligent, but the most responsive to change. That was Charles Darwin. So they're both getting at the need to change. A very interesting dynamic that happens, particularly in larger organizations, is when you look at the organizational life cycle, organization starts, it's very focused on its customers and its services that it's providing, and then it matures. And as it grows further in its, in its age and size and everything else, it becomes less focused on the exterior world, the markets that you're in, the customers that are out there, it becomes more internally focused. The interesting dynamic of that is that many large organizations do not see the need for change and are the last ones to embody the innovation. And often it's the smaller, newer startup organizations that innovate. Now, it absolutely doesn't have to be that way. That's just the way it is if you're not being proactive about innovation. Here are a number of kind of interesting quotes that make this point. Leaders in their field, people who really knew what was going on, but they didn't. They were actually out of step with where the market was about to go. So the president of digital computer equipment, which was a large mainframe computer company, digital and IBM were competitors um, back in the 60s and 70s, had a great quote from 1977, which is, there's no reason for any individual to have a computer in their home. So what happened in 1977? Well, I think it was actually 1976 that Apple computer came out with the Apple II. And it really started this, this little industry that grew and grew and grew into uh, the technology world that we know today. But 
here, someone at the very highest level of one of the biggest companies in the computing business didn't see that potential coming. Another great one. I, I love this one. The, um, an executive with Decca Records in 1962 had just heard a demo tape of the Beatles and said, we don't like their sound. Groups with guitars are on their way out. Can you imagine not signing the Beatles in 1962? Um, <laughs> that, that seems like a career killer right there. Um, and then there's another one from Business Week in 1968 when they were asked about uh, Japanese auto industry. And they said, with 50 foreign cars already on sale here, the Japanese auto, auto industry isn't likely to carve out a big slice of the U.S. market for itself. Well, boy, were they wrong. Um, they were all wrong. And the interesting thing is they, are, they, they were absolute leaders in their field, considered the most knowledgeable in their field at the time, and they all missed the boat because they were more focused on the past than the future, more focused on the way things were operating right then than on innovation. So today we're going to be looking specifically at a book that was written by W.J. Kim and Renee Mauborn. Um, and that book is Blue Ocean Strategy. So when this book came out, it was quite a revelation just in itself because it looked at innovation and a very specific kind of innovation um, that is pretty much the envy of anyone in any kind of market out there. And the idea of Blue Ocean is that you have created a market space that is basically owned by your entity. You've created it, you own it. Eventually, competitors will come in and, and start competing with you. But the idea is to create, not to compete. In most markets out there, there are numerous other entities out there offering a very, very similar product or service, and you're basically just competing. Um, you are at a lower price or a little more convenient, or your product is, you know, ever so slightly better than the, than the competitors, but basically the same. With Blue Ocean Strategy, you are creating your own market, one that didn't exist before and one that you own. And there are some fabulous things that come with that. One of the key things in creating this new and original market for yourself is that you are creating what they call a value innovation. And if you have um, two triangles, two inverted triangles that overlap in the middle, the top one, which is inverted and points down to the bottom, is cost. So you're trying to go low cost and then the bottom one, which points up and overlaps, is called buyer value. So without the graphics, just think about being told that you want to create something that is valued more and costs less. For many people, they would look at that initially and say, well, that's just impossible. You can't be higher value and lower cost. But in truth, you really can, because the key is value. Value is subjective. Cost is completely objective. You can you can account for costs. It, it's a it's a spreadsheet of of inputs and expenses. 
value is in the mind of the customer and that is completely subjective. So when you can find that spot where the customer thinks it's of higher value, but it's actually a lower cost, you have created a, a magical space that you would like to be in. So let's look at some examples of this because it Blue Ocean Strategy, I think, is best described and studied with examples. So probably everyone out there is familiar with yellowtail wine. It has a kangaroo on the cover. It's from Australia. The interesting thing about yellowtail wine is it actually wasn't a brand that, that came um, out of Australia in terms of being a brand that was popular there. It was an Australian brand, but it was created for the U.S. market specifically. And it was created in 2001. So brand new on the market in 2001. And today it is one of the top wine brands globally in the world. It's in the top 10. So how did, how did they do that? Well, Yellowtail Wine approached wine in a totally different way. And it, and when you stop and think about it, okay, we've had, we've had wine for millions of years. <laughs> it, is, it is not a new product. You know, ancient Greeks and Romans were drinking wine. And yet here in, you know, the last few decades, a wine company has come in and shaken up the market and created something very, very different. So they came at it with a... Um, with an interesting revelation. And the heart of most Blue Ocean strategies is a revelation about the customer. So they realized that the U.S. market was basically a beer market, that some people drank wine, but the majority of people were consuming beer because it was, it was easy. You knew exactly what to do with it. It was um, non-pretentious. You didn't have to, basically people were scared off of wine because of the rules. You have to pair wine, a certain kind of wine with a certain kind of food. You didn't want to buy a wine if you didn't know it was going to be okay and you didn't really know what to do with it. So on every bottle of yellowtail wine, there is a tagline under the, under the name of the wine. And it says something to the effect of enjoy with a Sunday roast family and friends. Enjoy with a steak in front of a roaring fire. Enjoy with appetizers and a gorgeous sunset. Enjoy with Asian cuisine and some juicy gossip. So in all of those taglines, and there, and there are many others of a similar note, they are first of all telling you how to pair the wine with foods, which was one of the reasons that people didn't buy more wine is they just weren't sure what to do with it. And then the second thing is very um, appealing, which is they are painting a picture for you that you can step into. You are there with your friends. You're in front of a roaring fire. You're hearing great gossip. You know, it is, they are painting a picture of a social gathering and you want to be there in the middle of it. And you can be with your bottle of yellowtail wine. So, they really did accomplish a number of interesting things with this simple tagline. They also, it's interesting to note the games they didn't choose to play. So 
most wines, whether premium or budget wines, have all tried to compete on the same scale. They all want to have the most prestigious name. Um, you know, it's a chateau to something or other, and there's a picture of some manor house on the on the bottle. They want it to be aged um, a certain amount of time, maybe in a in a French oak barrel or or something of that nature. They want the vineyard to be prestigious and old, whether it's in Sonoma Valley or in Europe somewhere or in Argentina. But they want it to have a long history and really be sort of steeped in this tradition of winemaking. Yellowtail doesn't do any of that. Their wine isn't aged in any oak barrels in any place. It's made in a stainless steel barrel, <laughs> and it is um, simple to to pick out, and it is easy to drink, and it's sort of fun and adventuresome. And those are all things that the rest of the wine industry have not been trying to do. They've not been trying to make it easy, fun, and adventuresome. But you sell a lot of wine when you do that, and that was their invention. So they took fermented grape juice, which has been around for millions of years. They packaged it in a very different way with insights into the customer. And because of those insights, they were able to create their own market. Now, today there are competitors to Yellowtail, but Yellowtail started that. The other thing they did is if you went into a grocery store, they would have a display at the end of the counters with a whole bunch of Yellowtail wines um, stacked up and signage around it. Well, none of the other wine distributors were doing that. You know, you'd walk down long shelves of of red wine and white wine and rosé wine, and you'd, you know, maybe it'd be labeled by the country or region it was from, but they didn't have a big display at the end with big signage. So again, they were reaching out to the customer and making this the easy wine to select. They also had a little four-pack. So if you were going to a party, instead of picking up a six-pack of beer, maybe you pick up a little four-pack of yellowtail wine and you bring it to the party. And before this, that would have not been as common because it's not as easy and friendly and non-pretentious and, um, and just easy to select. So they really changed the way that American customers, North American customers, selected and drank wine and they sold a lot of it as a result of that innovation which put them in a market of their own. So again, getting back to that value innovation, they did not try to be the most expensive wine. They did not try to compete with the premium wines or even the budget wines on all the areas that they were trying to compete on. Basically, in strategy, you want to move away from the conventional wisdom. You want to do your own thing in your own way and create your own market. And they did that through focusing on things that had never been focused on before. So let's look at another example of Blue Ocean strategy. And that one is Cirque Soleil. The normal comparison for Cirque Soleil might be your standard three ring circus. 
think Barnum and Bailey or or some other kind of smaller regional circus that has three rings and a, a ringmaster and all of that going on and trapeze acts happening. Well, it turns out that the number one expense of a traditional circus is animals. Animals that need to be fed, they need to be cared for, they need to be transported and trained. The animal expense is giant. But getting back to that idea of cost does not equal value, what Circus Olay did is they are a show built completely from acrobats and gymnasts. So they're putting on very artfully done shows with a thematic element that goes throughout the show. They're, they're set to music. There's a storyline that goes through the show versus a three-ring circle circus, which is just one act and then another act and another act. None of them are connected in any thematic way. So the Circus Olay show is more like going to the theater than going to the traditional circus. And theater prices are much higher. So where a traditional circus might be $30, $35 to go into a, a traditional circus, a theater, you might be paying $80 or $100 to go to. Well, Circus Olay is charging that $80 or $100 or more to go to their shows, but they actually cost less than running a circus because they don't have all those animals. So again, they've, they've figured out how to have a lower cost and a higher value in the customer's mind. And they've done that through this, this blue ocean strategy that thinks about the product in a different way and provides the value that the customer wants to see and cuts out the things and doesn't compete in the areas where the costs are high and the value is low. So that is an interesting challenge to everyone to think about the products or services that they offer in their field and what are the cost drivers? And do you actually even need those cost drivers? Are those the things that the customer values? Or are those just the way that you've traditionally been delivering those services? A lot to think about there. So let me give you another example. And this one is not from the Blue Ocean Strategy book, but gosh, it really should be next time it comes out. This one is a Blue Ocean Strategy, clearly that was implemented by Nova Parks over the last 10 years. And so Nova Parks is this regional park agency in the Northern Virginia area that I'm associated with and am the executive director of. And we have five water parks. And in water parks, you have, you have your big fancy water parks with lots of slides and lots of features. And we have, we have one of those that's quite large as many slides, as a big wave pool. And that's traditionally how water parks compete with each other, whether they are a public sector water park like we have or something like Six Flags or, or any of the others out there. They compete on big features. And we also had several other water parks that were very large pools that had been created. And they had a few slides and a few features but they really weren't enough to compete as big water parks. And essentially what they were competing against were community pools. And in this day and age, most 
residential communities are built with community pools. So there isn't as much drive to go, go somewhere else to just be in a flat water pool where you can just swim, basically. Um, so you need something more to attract people. In 2005, 2006 um, timeframe, 2007 even, we actually were considering closing one of these pools. It was uh, Pohick Bay Regional Park, and they had a large pool that was in the middle of this thousand acre park. And it was put way back in the park where it has no street traffic. So you really had to know about it to go there. And we were losing money every year just by opening it because the attendance at that, at that pool, I'll call it, had been declining for years and years and years. The costs were fixed and the attendance and revenue was in decline. So we could simply close the doors and make more money than having the doors open. Instead, we thought about doing a blue ocean strategy. And we were forced to do so because we didn't have the money to do the traditional route of building a big water park with lots of big features. So instead, we had to be a little more clever about it. And what we created was something called Pirate's Cove Water Park. So we put in some new features, uh, a big dumping bucket and some little slides. But the main thing that we did was theme the whole thing from the beginning to the middle to the end, so that out in front of it, you have this turnaround area with, with fake palm trees and signage throughout the park leading you there that has the skull and crossbones and says Pirate's Cove Water Park. And you get there, and on the side of the building facing you, we made the entire building look like a giant pirate ship. Uh, we had our maintenance folks build these fake cannons that were mounted on the side of the building. And then we hired someone to paint a mural along the side of it. And then we put in a big mast and sail and crow's nest with a pirate up there looking out of a, a spyglass. And we created this entire environment so that then we walked in, we had nets and sails and um, life-size pirates hanging from the ceiling with knives in their in their mouths. And we just muraled up everything we could and created the pirate theming throughout the entire facility. We had signs that talked about, you know, pirate history. And our maintenance staff also built a something that looked like a a pirate ship with a with a steering wheel that kids could get on and spin the wheel around and have their picture taken. We had a fun time doing it too. We all created pirate names while we were working on this project. And we had probably more fun than we than we really, you know, are supposed to have. But it was it was a great deal of fun putting this together. And the fundamental insight in this is an insight into the customer. So who is the customer of a water park? Well, it turns out the customer is not who you might think of. You might think the customer is the parent who takes the family to the water park and actually pays for them to come in and buys them food and other things. That's not the real customer. The real customer of a water park are children from about the age of three to 10. So sort of focus on on elementary school children. 
that is the age of imagination. And what we did is create an imagination environment. We created a sand play area and we seeded it with, with uh, fake gold and other sort of pirate-themed things that you could dig up in the, in the sand. We just worked the theming throughout and we tapped into this sense of adventure and sense of mystery with pirates that has always been there. For as long as there have been pirates, people have been fascinated with them. Disney certainly used the pirate theme to great advantage in, uh, in lots of movies, and even their first ride was Pirates of the Caribbean. So Disney doesn't own pirates, and uh, they're you know, a historical thing, so we could, we could tap into them just as well. And the end result was we created a water park that has been tremendously popular, and we didn't compete on the most expensive features. Now, since that time, we've added another big slide and some new, some other new features, but theming has been front and center, and the result of that has been fantastic. So we did this renovation in 2008. By 2009, our revenues have sh had shot up, and they continued to go up and up and up every year since then. And the expenses are relatively fixed. They don't, they don't change a great deal with how many people are coming in. Uh, we actually had issues with the parking, not needing more parking. I love that issue when you need more parking. But we created tremendous success there by thinking about the customer in a new way and creating a new market. So now, if you want to go to the pirate-themed water park, well, that's ours. If you want to go to any other water park, you can do that too. But we own that identity in our region. The year after we did that, we took our second lowest performing water park, which was at Bull Run Park, and we created the Lost City of Atlantis. People have been looking for this for millions of years, millions of years, thousands of years, thousands of years. They've been looking in the wrong place. They thought it was, you know, in the Greek islands. It wasn't. It was in Centerville, Virginia, and we found it right there. So, again, think about Disney and some of their movies that have had mermaids and have been popular. Again, Greek mythology is not owned by anyone. So we have Poseidon and we have mermaids and we have all of this fun kind of Greek stuff. We took the front of the building. We made it look like a Greek temple as you were coming in. Um, with, you know, all the classical columns and such. And we created another amazing success. Again, the year after the innovation, the year after the renovation, revenues shot up at that water park and have continued to go up every year since. So thinking about the customer and thinking about the market that you're in and how to do something unique and different is amazing. I'll just mention Played that trick a third time, too, when we took the water park at Algonquin Regional Park and we made it into Volcano Island. So it has the best volcano in the area on its roof, and it has Easter Island-like um, heads on the, on the deck and lots of palm trees and tiki stuff, and it's all about the Polynesian um, volcano experience. And as soon as we did that, 
revenues went up. The revenues went up because people came. Again, we're focusing in on that elementary school child who's at the age of imagination, and we're tapping into that imagination, giving them something more than just, you know, a lot of chlorinated water, giving them a lot of chlorinated water and a great theme and a lot of fun. And that has set those water parks apart. And I think is a great example of what um, they were talking about in Blue Ocean Strategy of creating something that is a unique market that then you sort of own and really aren't, aren't competing with anyone directly. So in our area, if you want the Polynesian or you want the, the ancient Greek or you want the pirate, we have a water park for each one of those that taps into that state of imagination. So there are so many different ways that you can do this, but it really requires thinking about your market, thinking about what you do that is of high expense and what you do that is of high value to the customer and realizing that those two things may not be the same things at all. And when you realize that and you can figure out how to make something of high value that is not necessarily of high expense, and that is unique enough to create your own market, then you've done a blue ocean strategy. So I think you can apply this to any field. And I think it's imperative to use innovation. This is one theory and method of innovation, but without innovation, organizations will get stale, their product services, whatever they offer, will get stale and they will go into decline. So the reason we innovate is that we want to provide our customers, our public, our constituencies the very best. And to do that, we need to be original. So there's a little bit about Blue Ocean Strategy. There are some other innovation strategies that I very well may cover in the future that are also fantastic. Um, one of the interesting things about reading a book like Blue Ocean Strategy and thinking about it is it takes innovation out of the idea that, that some people are just basically born with this amazing creativity and some people aren't. There is certainly some truth to that, but I think there's also truth that you can think about a methodology to innovation. And once you figure out what the formula is, you can start thinking about and applying that formula to whatever market you're looking at. So we can all be innovators. We all should be innovators. And thank you so much for, for joining us on this episode of Strategic Leadership. I'd like to give a call out to Max Mason, who is the producer of this channel and has done a great job of, of taking this raw material and making it into a wonderful finished product. So thank you, Max. And thank you to all of you out there. Please like and subscribe and comment. When you do those things, it helps others find this content, which could be useful to them. Thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you next time.